And if you would be pleased opening to Acts chapter 6. This morning we are uh, continuing with our series in Acts. uh, And the title of our series is Witness. Uh, To witness means really to... to demonstrate through our actions, and we're going to see in this passage when Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin, uh, our lives are to be lived in such a way that people can see Jesus in us. And so to witness is to live like Jesus. And to live uh, giving testimony to the, the resurrection power that has been placed in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit, but also by the victory and the the, the confidence that we walk in as we were singing just a minute ago. Let's look at Acts chapter 6, verse 8, through the end of the chapter. Excuse me a second. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, thanks mom, mom's always there to help me with pronunciation, (laughs) my whole life, (laughs) and of the Alexandrians, I had a, a, it's a hyphen, so I had to put it together in my brain before I could pronounce it, (laughs) and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Holy Spirit, help us understand your word help us live the truth of your word in jesus name we pray amen you know the difference between a window and a mirror is what you can see through a window you see a reflection in a mirror and true surrender and i think this is what we see this is the first part of what we see in stephen's story that's going to go into chapter seven when Uh, He is then giving his defense in front of the Sanhedrin, which will end up in his martyrdom. But we see in Stephen a window into the heavenlies, a window into Jesus' life. And true surrender in the Christian life is kind of, we want to be windows. We want to be a a see-through to Jesus rather than a lot of times we will bump into the fact that we are looking for our reflection in the people around us. So we want to be a mirror of ourselves, we maybe are looking for mirrors to see our reflection rather than Jesus, but we just, we want to be surrendered. And Stephen's experience uh, that Luke records for us is that his life displayed a full surrender 
by which he proved to be a window into the heavenlies. One, they see his face like an angel. Remember at the end of chapter 7, he says after his defense, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, literally looking into the heavenlies. He was a transfer into the heavenlies. And what Stephen's experience shows us as well is there is a powerful intimacy when we share Jesus' sufferings. Think about that. There's a powerful intimacy. We experience Jesus in very unique ways as we walk through suffering. The Apostle Paul says this. And, and remember, we don't, we don't suffer to pay our debt, anything that's left over from what Jesus didn't die for. We don't, we don't suffer to gain acceptance with the Father. God allows and will sometimes orchestrate suffering simply for us to understand the Savior in a deeper way, in a more intimate way. Paul said this in Philippians 3, verses 10 and 11. <coughs> I'm sorry, I'm coughing. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's not saying this, I have to earn this. He's saying, no, I want to share so I can, that, he says right, right after this, that I may know him and the, the power of his resurrection. The Apostle Peter says the same in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be, be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. God, in his wisdom, uses seasons of suffering. He, may, he might use moments of suffering twofold. One, so we can understand all that Jesus is to us, that his presence really is with us in our affliction, in our suffering, but he's also using it as a window for others to look through to see his glory. So we are experiencing something, but the people around us are also experiencing something because they look to Jesus and see him. This is what Stephen's experience teaches us. And this passage inspires us to pursue Jesus in order to see Jesus. So we can see him personally, and so those around us can see him as well. And so, very easily, uh, I think what we see that, that Stephen demonstrated was that he walked like Jesus, he talked like Jesus, and he looked like Jesus. That's what we want to strive to be in our lives as well. We want to walk like Jesus. Stephen has a great resume, a great resume of Christian character, Christ-like character. And we strive, and we want the same qualities. But look, to, to be full of faith. That's cool. Full of it. Not, not striving for it. Not hit and miss. Full of faith. Also full of the Holy Spirit. These were given earlier in chapter 6 when Stephen was one of the seven selected in order to be deacons to serve. He is also, in, and we find this in verse 8, he is full of grace. Boy, what, to, to be, to have that set of us full of grace, full of power. A lot of times we don't put those together. Luke's putting those together. Full of grace and 
power, full of power, doing great wonders, doing great signs. Remember, this is not so Stephen can get his own following. The people around him, I think, are misinterpreting who he is. So they're coming to dispute because, like, hey, you, you're trying to get your own following going. You take, you're distracting people from us. We need to talk. We need to figure out what's going on. He's not doing that. He just simply wants to be a window into the heavenlies to see Jesus. And that's what he's doing. But he's doing it through his serving. He's serving the people. He's serving the widows. He's serving the sick. He's serving the hurting by going and praying over them and seeing God show up. This, this, this Stephen is walking in Jesus' steps. He's walking just like Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter to the church, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Yeah, I remember as a kid uh, walking on the beach the Gulf Coast and, and my dad was in front of me and I remember trying to match and put my feet in his footsteps and his stride was much longer than mine was at six or seven years old, but I, I had to jump to the, I just, I wanted to walk in his steps. And I think the Father is pleased when we are trying to do the same. I, I, Jesus, I just want to be like you. I want to walk like you walk. Stephen walked the walk of Jesus, who was also full of grace and truth. The Apostle John reminds us in chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when we serve people in love, when we serve people in grace, many times it will stir up jealousy. And that's what we see occurring in this account, the synagogue of the freedmen. This was a synagogue filled with freed slaves who were together. The, the issue between the Hellenists and the Jews back in that day was that the Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jews. They didn't know Hebrew. The Jews feeling superior, wanting to uh, let everybody know they were superior because they went to the synagogue that was spoken in Hebrew, not the normal language of everyday life of Greek. And so they had, they had pride in their Hebrew. Well, you all are the Hellenists. And so that's why you have this tension arise. Well, wait a minute. The Greek-speaking people aren't getting... The, the Greek widows, Greek-speaking widows, are not being served. What's going on here? Maybe there was the tension of superiority, tension of uh, self-righteousness, tension of God. We know God better because we speak his language, the language of, of Abraham. Those tensions are always there. But this synagogue is a synagogue of freedmen. Now, all of these people, this is a synagogue in Jerusalem, most probably, and it's made up of the people that are around. An interesting place is Cilicia, which is the, the region that Paul is from. That's Tarsus is in Cilicia. So it could very well be that the Apostle Paul himself, who would become the Apostle Paul, Saul in this moment, he could be orchestrating this whole, whole thing. Because we're going to find out at the end of chapter 7, who's standing holding everybody's coats when they go to stone Stephen? Paul's there. So it could be, he could be orchestrating and behind this entire episode with Stephen. 
But these synagogue of freedmen, man, they're the, they're the Greek speakers. They're, they're the ones that Stephen is trying to convince of the gospel and say, no, that this Jesus is the one who is the promised Messiah. And he is, he's doing this through his preaching, but also through his serving. And it stirs up jealousy with the people around him. And their jealousy moved the issue from serving people. Like, hey, can you, like, who can go up to somebody and say, will you just stop being so nice to everybody? You're making us look bad. Come on. That exposes pride right there. Nobody can say that. So what do they do? They move it from, hey, you're serving people. Now we're going to move it to try to make you unintelligent. You must not be smart. And this is the oldest, <laughs> this is the oldest schoolyard playground trick that has ever existed. If I'm not as good at you as you, I'm just going to make you feel dumb. And we see it happen on talk show after talk show after talk show. We see it happen all over social media. I, I can't believe these people would think this way. That is, I can't match you in character, so I'm going to try to bring your character down. I'm going to try to make you dumb. Satan's behind that. And he's got no new tricks. That's why I love the reminder of, of who we are in Christ as we sang. We have to be reminded of who we are. Stephen was full, <coughs> full of this. When they try to move the issue from serving to intelligence, they couldn't combat what he was saying. They, they tried to move it and the Holy Spirit was ready. Because we then find out that Stephen was talking like Jesus. He was walking like him in terms of the character that he was displaying and the, the grace and the truth and the serving, but now he's talking like him. Their disputes could not withstand, look at that, the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. This man, how, to, to operate this way, with patience, speaking the truth in love, Remember, Jesus promised that the Spirit's empowering wisdom would be upon his disciples for these types of situations. We find that in Luke chapter 12. We referenced this several weeks ago when we looked at Peter's uh, interaction with the Jewish leaders and, and specifically the, the Sanhedrin, which was the 71 Jewish legal, uh, legal council, uh, legal uh, rulers. Now, when Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to give us the words to say in those moments, it doesn't mean that we don't have to study Scripture or do the hard work of knowing Scripture or knowing what it means. Stephen knew the Scriptures because he had studied them. So it's not permission to not invest. We, we need to invest in the Scriptures because we read the Scriptures to experience Jesus' presence in our moments that results in walking and talking like Him. See, prayer is... And reading the scriptures is the way that we see Jesus and experience Jesus on this earth. And as we look at him and gaze upon him and his glory, we become like him. Second uh, Corinthians three eighteen is popping into my mind. Uh, from one degree of glory to another, as we look upon Christ, we become like him from one degree of glory to the next. See, when we read scripture... Uh, it's putting ammunition into our spiritual armory so the Spirit can come tap that storehouse when the time is needed. Now, he, he will also, because he protects the preaching of his word, he'll give us things we didn't even remember reading in the scriptures, uh, maybe in the form of just reasoning something out, 
God does that. But we, we need to do the hard work of investing in the Scriptures and thinking deeply about the Scriptures. So they come, uh, they can't dispute Stephen. They bring him before the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council. The same, the same leaders that couldn't combat Jesus' wisdom now cannot combat Stephen's wisdom because it's the same God addressing them. So now they finally stop asking questions and the, the tactic changes to, we want to get rid of you. That's what happened with Jesus, right? I, I, can't, I can't address you. I can't, cha- I can't change your mind. So now I'm going to get rid of you. This happens because the wisdom of God does not make sense. To religious culture, that's based in legalism and performance. The grace of God does not make sense in a performance-based belief system. And the wisdom of God makes zero sense in a secular culture that looks to man as being the final authority for everything that happens on the earth in his life. Paul says this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. For since in the wisdom of God, the world, excuse me, The world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God. That means their own wisdom. They can't figure out how to get to God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Folly meaning people who are looking on it. That's dumb. That can't work. God says, watch it work. Verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Because the Jews are saying, that's not strong enough. That's a weak, we don't have a weak savior who goes to the cross. That's not strong enough. The Greeks say, that's not smart enough. That's it? You just depend on a guy who died on a cross and rose the third? That's it? Yeah. Jews say it's not strong enough. Greeks say it's not smart enough. God says, watch how powerful. Watch how intelligent this is. Because we didn't come up with it. God did. But those, verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love how the Apostle Paul just exalts God in that moment, exalts the Father. You think you figured him out? You haven't figured out anything. It humbles us. It humbles us to the point where we should be trusting him. God, you are God and I'm not. But somebody who doesn't have the Holy Spirit residing in them, somebody who doesn't have saving faith looks at that and says, God, you're ridiculous. I'm going this other way. But when, when he works on our hearts in a way that we say, oh, you're God. I'm not. I worship you. Now, these men who want to shut up Stephen conspire to bring a lie to the ruling council. This character assassination is the motive when Jesus' light begins to shine through. He was brought before the same council that killed Jesus. And the the same people bring up the same exact arguments that they brought up with Jesus in the middle of the night before he went to the cross. He talks about the temple. He talks about the law. He's trying to change everything. It appears that Stephen really, he was speaking just like Jesus about the temple and about the law. He was telling them how hollow the temple was. You can't say that. 
This is the temple. This, all the promises that God made for the, the temple. No, this, how, how is it hollow? Jesus, remember, coming on there, there's a lot of activity when he comes. Right before he turns the tables over, there's a lot of commotion and activity, but there's no heart change happening. Stephen may have been saying the same thing. And he was also pointing out how the law of Moses was insufficient to save. It is powerful pointing towards salvation because it tells us we can't ever be who God wants, uh, what he requires in terms of righteousness. We just will not match what he requires. Jesus is the one that fulfills it. And of course, I'm sure sure Stephen was pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law, but that irritates them. Why did it irritate them? Because they were financially tied to the temple. A lot of these rulers, their, their livelihood was the commotion of the temple. That's how they got their money. And their security, their eternal security, came from we follow the law really, really well. See, when we speak the truth in love, when Stephen spoke the truth full of grace and power, it revealed the trust of the people that he, that was, he was preaching to or people that were listening to him. See, truth always reveals trust. It reveals false trusts. It reveals, I'm trusting in financial security that I'm seeing. I'm trusting in a performance mentality that God will accept me by how good I am. It always, the truth always reveals what we're trusting. Stephen's preaching of the truth challenged their false trusts. And it it challenged that they were, and revealed to them, that they were simply trusting in mirages that appear in the desert, that when you come upon them, nothing's there. And there's always a need for the people of God to speak the truth in whatever culture and generation the Lord places us in. We live the truth, we speak the truth. And we must be ready for a culture to be combative when the truth is upheld. That doesn't mean we start off being combative. It means we're speaking the truth in love. We talk like Jesus We have to be ready for opposition when truth is upheld. The truth of marriage. The church in this day, in our time, in our hour, the truth of marriage is being attacked. And we as the church are to speak the truth and display the truth in our marriages. What is severely under attack in our generation is the truth of gender. That somebody can just say, I don't want to be this anymore. Looking at what God has created as insufficient and wrong, and I'm going to try my freedom through being something else. What we know in the scriptures, that means, that just constrains you. When, you think, when we go to something that we think will free us, and it's not God, it will just constrain us all the more. And, and tie us up emotionally, tie us up spiritually to where we, we are pinned down and don't know what to do. And so the response usually is just anger. You know, gender dysphoria has replaced anorexia and bulimia in adolescent girls over the past five to ten years. They're not, they're not concerned about their appearance. I need to be skinny enough. They're concerned about, am I even a girl? 
the, tr- the truth is to be upheld, but our truth is to be spoken in love with a powerful love that invites the person questioning, that invites the person who is confused, that invites the person who just hates their spouse more than anything. And we say, no, there's a oneness that needs to be preserved and maintained and that God's grace can sustain it. Might be some work that needs to be done, but let's preserve what God says is good. So that is our commission to talk like Jesus. Is knowing that the truth that we speak will bring opposition. Why? Because it reveals trust. It reveals trust in ourselves or if we're trusting in ourselves, we're really trusting in the Lord. So Stephen, he walked like Jesus, he talked like Jesus, and we see in this last verse, in verse 15, that he looked like Jesus. It says, look, gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Really, I think literally speaking, his face was shining with glory. And this is not, see, my mind goes to that You may have seen renderings or paintings of Stephen with his face shining like an angel, and it kind of looks like this. I don't think that's happening at all. I mean, the Renaissance did some great things, but they made some serious wimps out of Jesus and the disciples. Now, remember in Scripture, when an angel showed up, what were they doing? Oh, look how cute! No, they weren't doing that, though. They all, had to be, they all had to be told, don't be afraid. Because they thought they were going to die. Mary and Joseph, uh-oh, an angel. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he goes in. <laughs> he goes into the temple, he sees the angel, and comes out mute. Everybody was freaked out about that. So, gazing at him, They see, look, I love, this is the intelligence and the wisdom and the humor of God. They're they're telling Stephen that he doesn't know who Moses is. You know what? You don't know this Moses guy. You don't know what the law is doing. You don't know why it was given and, and how God wants to use it. I think that God, in his humor, makes Stephen's face shine with the exact same glory that Moses' face shined with when Moses was spending time with God. That's the intimacy. So he says, oh, he doesn't know Moses? Watch this. I think this is the same exact glory that Jesus was transfigured into. And Peter, James, and John fell down because, whoa! Remember, look at chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? So at that moment, they could have said enough. They let him continue because I think they saw something holy in that moment. They saw something powerful in that moment. They saw the presence of God in Stephen, specifically in his face. The presence of God. This this is the truth that I'm still trying to grasp. The presence of God, that shining glory is promised 
to every disciple throughout all generations until Jesus returns. Oh, I want to know that type of glory. I want to know that type, that, that settled, oh, that settled glory that just knows Jesus is with me. And what a powerful intimacy that is. Psalm 34 helps us understand this a little more too. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps. In some descriptions in the Old Testament, the angels were fiery creatures. That's pretty cool. They encamp us. And they will deliver and those who fear, and in not the afraid, afraid, that, whoa, God, you are God. I am not, but I submit and surrender to you. I want to know you. It's that, it's that weird awe that draws us in. It doesn't repel us forever. And initially, we see God as, whoa. But then, what, is, what happens? We are drawn into him to experience his presence and know him. That's, that's what I think Paul was talking about to the Philippians that I may know him that way. Because when I know his presence, it doesn't matter what comes. It doesn't matter what struggle. It doesn't matter what affliction or suffering comes. Because he's God. And we have that powerful intimacy with him. No matter what, what relational struggle or financial difficulty, we have that glory in us. And as we submit and surrender to it, we see Jesus. And others see Jesus. Back in my early 20s, I came across, uh, I discovered John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, and he was just describing how our, our lives are to be characterized by delight and joy in God. And that revolutionized how I thought about God's relationship with me and then my desire to experience his, my relationship with him. And so our best life is finding our ultimate joy in God. And that, that, that sometimes looks like we have nothing. It doesn't mean we keep on trying to get blessing after blessing. It means, no, the blessing is that we have that joy and it could mean we have nothing. And even like... Uh, we looked at A.W. Tozer's The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing, that we have in life open hands and we are surrendered and saying, God, you give, you take away, I'm blessing you because your love and your life, that's all I need. That's all I need. That's what Stephen was demonstrating. And he had the radiance of God's glory shining through him. So church, let's pursue that radiance Let's pursue the glory of God. Let's be with Jesus because Jesus is with us. So to walk and talk and look like Jesus simply means surrendering to him. You own it all, God. You've got it all. And I want you to be exalted by being the most important thing in my life. 
by being the most important passion and pursuit that I could ever give my life to. That's what he calls us to. Amen. Lord, thank you that we have your presence always with us. How how marvelous, how magnificent, how mysterious that is. But Lord, I pray that we would, in our personal times with you, we would see your glory, please. Like Moses asked, God, would you show us your glory? Because that's what we need more than a particular answer to a prayer or relief from a struggle. We just, we need to see your glory that you've given us in the face of Christ. And may we shine with your radiance, Lord. May we shine with your brilliance. May we shine with your love. May we shine with your truth. Shine with your grace. Shine with your power. Please, God, transform us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, as part of our commission, we have some activities in the church. As, as a part of our go and make disciples, this is what's happening in the life of the church that we can join into. We have, uh, we have the first Knowing God's Peace uh, study last Wednesday night in our house that continues this week. It's not too late to, to come and be a part of that. If you need directions or help with that, you can see me right afterwards. Also, this Tuesday night, uh, 215 Tribe is beginning their Ephesians study. You can see Kerr about that. It starts at 6 p.m. Uh, next Sunday, there will be a kids back-to-school pool party, uh, fun, food, games. It will be at the Hans house again uh, right after our Sunday gathering next Sunday. That is for families who have kids. And if you're a part of the children's ministry in any way, uh, you're invited to come to that and have fun. Lunch will be provided for, uh, for you. All right, let's be reminded. All authority, Jesus said. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I love that. All authority is his. Nobody tells Jesus what to do. He commands everything. And he says to bless us in our obedience so we can shine like him. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. May God bless us.